0: but I want to today continue to speak to you about Israel. And and I I brought an initial message about this two weeks ago um, when the war had started on October 7th that I felt provoked uh, that it's important to address the biblical data picture around this unique nation. And and again, I want to repeat this disclaimer that I brought last time, that I'm not trying to advocate a political support position on the present crisis, um, it's very difficult to know what to say. I think there are some things that are clear. I think there are some things that, that are harder to see. But you know, there are sometimes I hear folks in churches speak as if unbelieving Jewish people and the and Israel as a nation that's that's secular and unbelieving, largely, that they're going to escape God's judgment for their sins just because they're Israel just because they're Jewish. And there can be this kind of political fervor to just say amen to whatever Israel is doing and, and say terrible to whatever people in Gaza are doing. And, and by the way, I think we can say terrible to most everything that Hamas is doing. Uh, they're a terrorist organization, their mission statement is to literally destroy the nation of Israel. So, but there's a lot of folks who aren't in that place, who aren't Jewish. Who are looking for peaceful solutions. So I don't want you to hear me in talking about Israel this way, speaking as if unbelieving, Christ rejecting Israel as a nation is deserves to get a pass from God. And and, and sometimes I can detect in myself that kind of thing and even a, a deep-seated hatred for Islamic terrorists, like the kind that attacked Israel on October 7th, and kind of let that reality wash over all Muslim people for me, that I I can lack mercy in in my heart that needs to be there, and and that's wrong too. Um, I I think Islam is a false religion, and I think like every system that rejects the truth about Jesus Christ, it has a demonic force behind it. Um, But we're called to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us, and to bless those who curse us and to trust justice and vengeance to God's hand as individuals. So the reality is, well-behaved Israelis who reject their Messiah, and Muslim terrorists and the civilians, the Muslim civilians in Gaza whom terrorists exploit, all of them, like us, desperately need Jesus. And they need our prayers to that end. But I do believe the Bible teaches that the Jewish people and the land promised to the Jewish people in the Bible again and again and again, that 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 reality has a unique role in the circumstances that lead to the second coming of Christ. His judgment upon all nations and the establishment of his very real and visible coming kingdom upon the earth. And and even as I say those words, I run into this thing in myself. And maybe it happens in you. Is this real? Is this real? Is a guy really gonna come from the clouds? Like a, a guy with arms and legs gonna materialize out of the air and call up souls to him? with new bodies and call people out of the grave? Like, is that, isn't that just a poem? Right, amen. Like, is it real? It, it's the stuff of movies, isn't it? I mean, it's what we see. It sounds like it's what we see, and Hollywood could do an amazing job with special effects today on that, you know? It's utterly impossible to conceive. And that's what happens to me. Is this really going to happen? In Peter, one of Peter's letters, I think it's 2 Peter, Peter talks about godlessness in the last days. And he says there's going to be scoffers. And they're going to say, Where is this coming that you're talking about, you Jesus' followers? Everything is happening just as it always has happened since ancient times it's what it says that they'll say and then peter says this interesting thing he says these scoffers they deliberately overlook they deliberately overlook meaning they're 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 willingly ignorant like both things they they really don't know but they also have made a decision not to know Like, that's what I think he's getting into the crux of. And he talks about how they're not paying attention to God's revelation in history. They're not paying attention to God's revelation in history. You guys might remember something that's a little closer to home for Christians. John the Baptist is in prison. He's going to be beheaded, and Herod has thrown him into a jail cell. And his ministry has withered, but Jesus' ministry has exploded. But he's still in prison. He's handed off the baton to Jesus, right? Jesus is the Messiah to John. He's the king of Israel who's come to establish the nation and drive out Israel's enemies and establish justice over all the earth. But John's in prison. He's just stuck there waiting. It stinks. It's dark. He's being mistreated. He's getting ready to be beheaded. And he's stuck day after day after day after day in the same dark place, waiting. And nothing is changing. I mean, Jesus came. He met Jesus. He saw miracles. Jesus changed his life for a time. He saw him. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He knew it. But now he's in prison. It's dark. He's being mistreated. He's suffering. He's waiting day after day. And so he sends one of his old disciples. He says, go ask this guy. Are you really the one who's to come? Like we're waiting. I'm waiting. Um, I got a death sentence. Are you going to fix this or what? And what does Jesus say to John's disciple? He says, tell John. The blind receive their sight. The lame and crippled walk. And the poor have good news preached to them. Jesus is saying, Tell John to remember what God said would happen. Tell John to remember what God promised in his word would happen. Tell John not to become willfully ignorant. And of course, John didn't want to be that way. But Jesus is concerned for John because he, he, there's a little edge to what he says. He says, tell John, I am fulfilling everything God said the Messiah would do up until this point. And then he said, blessed is he who finds no offense of stumbling in me. He's saying, John, don't be offended just because I'm not on your timetable. John, don't be offended just because it isn't happening exactly the way that you thought. I am still faithful, and my ID card still says the Messiah. The problem was John didn't understand the Messiah had to come and suffer and die before he would return as a conquering king. And so at, at the core of this message, and, and I think next week, but we'll see, is, is I think this under, undergirding appeal that we not overlook what God has said. The scriptures portray, I believe uniformly, the scriptures portray the time coming up to Jesus' return as a time that, that things are getting worse and worse. And that Christians are gonna have to suffer more increasingly. And The world's gonna get in worse and worse shape as people turn away from God. There's a shift that I think happens that we'll talk about today. And in, in that time, we all might end up feeling, if we don't already feel at times, we all often feel at times like John in that cell, don't we? Like, are you, I thought I knew you. I thought you changed my life, and now here I am in this suffering place. And I think Jesus would say, don't overlook my word. Don't overlook what I've promised. Come back to my word. Come back to my promises. I may not be on your timetable, I may not be on your schedule, but I will be faithful to you. I am who I said. And so this exercise of looking at Israel, and my desire not to get into politics, is really because I want us to look at what God has said. These promises. Because I want them to strengthen us. that, That this is true. That this book is reliable. That this book is a miracle. And we have hope that's unshakable, just as this book says. And that we know where to go a little bit better, maybe, than we might when we walked in this morning about some of these things. You know, people have all kinds of ideas about end-time scenarios and the details about them. And people disagree about a lot of things, and I think that's okay and reasonable. It's it's really tricky. <laughs> One of my favorite um, sayings about the end times comes from I think it's something Wayne Grudem said, but he might have coined the phrase off of somebody else. But it goes something like this: End times theology is is very difficult, partly because it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> you know, it's just like. It's hard to see. We see in part, but I'd like to offer you guys this idea of the shape of history. That's what this phrase came to my mind this this week, and I'm super excited about it. It's like, okay, but I am, I'm excited about this phrase. It came to me. Maybe it's from the Lord. I don't know. It doesn't sound evil. It's called the shape of history. The shape. Of, if I could write a book on end times, I'd call it the shape of history. What I mean by the shape of history is that. A shape of something is really its outline. Like you don't think of the details of something when you think of the shape of something. You think of the broad contours of it, right? The shape of history, the shape of a pear, the shape of a banana. I don't know if the banana's got black spots or dark spots or how ripe it is or when it's falling off the tree, but I know the general shape of a banana. And and I'd like to posit to you that I think, even though there's lots of disagreements between, you know, ah ah-mill and pre-mill and... There are there's so much agreement across the theological schools that's worth considering that that I think gives us a shape of history that we can say with like confidence and like excitement um, and and fear of the Lord but but more I think confidence that wow the shape of history looks like God said it would look it doesn't look like a banana. It doesn't look like an apple, but it does look like that, you know? It, it does look specifically like this specific way in, in some ways that though we can't see all the details, we can see the shape. So, some review. If you recall the last time, two weeks ago, if you were here, I asked you to reflect on this call that God had given Abraham in Genesis 12 and 17. He, he gives this call over and over again to Abraham and to his sons. He promises to, to bless the whole world through Abraham and through his descendant. The whole world is gonna be blessed through Abraham. This is when no one was talking to God as far as we can tell in the whole world. Post-flood, post-Babylon, God's like, I gotta get this going. I'm calling Abraham, I'm gonna start things redemptively afresh through this man. But he makes this promise to give him a homeland. And he says this homeland is going to be an everlasting possession. And he says that again and again. And then he follows up with the promise of the land through the prophets again and again and again. I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to give you this land. It's all over the place. And if you didn't hear the message last week, I'm not going to go over those verses. So go back and listen to that message. I can tell you how to get it if you didn't. I actually emailed you guys this week. I was like, get this message. So um, I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I just, I don't. I'm trying to tell you why I'm not going to go back over those verses. But God gave this homeland specifically to Abraham's son, Jacob, whom God renamed what? What did God rename Jacob? Israel. Israel. That's why we call it the nation of Israel. It's the nation of Jacob. All of Jacob's children by the flesh, all 12 sons, became the inheritors of this land according to God's promise. They're the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob's son. Every Jewish person that you meet who's really Jewish You go back far enough, their dad, 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 dad is Jacob. When God sent Jesus to Jacob, to Israel, to the nation, as he promised, he sent sent him as their long-awaited Messiah who would redeem them and establish them in the land forever and who would rule over all the earth from David's throne. God had prepared them with these promises and enticements about this Messiah they're going to send, He's gonna take his throne in Jerusalem and from Jerusalem he's gonna rule the whole earth. It's, it's, it's in many places in scripture. And that's why John in the prison cell is like, what is up with this guy? Let me languish in here in this prison. He's supposed to take David's throne in Jerusalem and rule the whole earth. It's promised again and again and again and again. Isaiah 9, Psalm 2, Daniel 7, Zechariah 14. But the nation did something tragic with their Messiah. They rejected him. They handed him over to the Romans to be crucified. And this, of course, was just as God had predicted in prophecies like Isaiah 53, Daniel 9, Psalm 118. And, of course, this was all in God's plan because in the holy irony of God, Jesus' rejection makes a way of salvation for the whole world through his blood. And so Israel's rejection of the Messiah becomes the mechanism by which God fulfills this promise that he made to Abraham to bless not just Israel, but the whole world. And he does it through the rejection and murder of his son. Talk about making lemonade out of lemons. Or an omelette out of cracked eggs. But that's what God does. It's as old as the garden. It's as old as Joseph when, when he said to his brothers, You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And so it's true of everything in our lives that what Satan and the flesh and the world means for evil, God triumphs and uses it for our good eventually. However, the rejection of Christ also brought a terrible judgment on the nation of Israel. And Jesus foretells this judgment in Luke 21. He's about to be crucified and he knows it. And he's telling the disciples that this great judgment is going to come on Israel and on Jerusalem for rejecting him. And this is one of these verses I want you to really listen. If you want to turn there, you can. But I'm going to say it. It's in Luke chapter 21. There's three, I think, three kind of verses like this where I'm going to say, please go there. And this is one of them. And here's what Jesus says in Luke 21. I'm going to start in verse 20. I'm going to skip a couple of phrases, okay? because I was trying to make this timely and compact. When you see Jerusalem, he's telling the disciples, surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Dot, dot, dot. Because these are the days of punishment, so that all things which have been written will be fulfilled. Now, God doesn't say all things are going to happen on that day, but he's saying this is part of what God is doing, so that all things everything written in my word is gonna be fulfilled. And this event is crucial towards that fulfillment of all things. And then Jesus says, there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. In other words, God's going to judge Jerusalem and Israel for rejecting Christ as a nation. Verse 24, this is the key verse I want to th- of the three. They will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled or completed. You see that last phrase? Jerusalem, Jesus said, is going to be exiled. People are going to be sent out into the nations, scattered across the earth. And Jerusalem, the city, will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. Who are the Gentiles? There you go. Rob Kelly's a Gentile. <laughs> you Gentile. I'm a Gentile. You're a Gentile. Unless you have Jewish blood, you're a Gentile. Gentile just means non-Jewish people. Sorry if I freaked anybody out with that. Yeah, we're all Gentiles. It's not a dirty word. I mean, it might have been to some of the Jews in that day, but it isn't to God. But here, it's, it's not a good thing. He's saying Jerusalem is going to be dominated by the Gentile nations. Forever? Forever, though? Like, if you heard Jesus say that, would you think he means Forever? Hmm, anyone? <laughs> no, until when? You can say it, someone say it loud. Yes, until the times of the, what? Until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. What in the world is he talking about? Put that question over here, okay? It's an important question, but I want you to note that. The terminus X, the ending point for the trampling of Jerusalem by the nations, is this thing called the completion, the end, the fulfillment, the finalization of the times of the Gentiles. Okay. And then Jesus tells the disciples, listen, this generation will not pass away until this destruction of Jerusalem takes place and some of these other signs that point to his coming. And of course, this is exactly what happens. Jesus says this destruction of Jerusalem, the sending out of the Jews and the ushering in of the times of the Gentiles is going to start in my lifetime, well, in the lifetime of of the uh, disciples. He says that a few verses later. And of course, this is exactly what happened. This is exactly what happened. In AD 70, 37 or so years after Jesus' death and resurrection, the Roman army led by General Titus, who later became an emperor, they surround Jerusalem, they destroy it, they slaughter a million people, and they lead the rest captive. They kill a million people. Just a few decades later, most of the Jews remaining in the Promised Land area are largely expelled. There's very few Jews left in that area. This Roman emperor Hadrian, he renames Israel in in A.D. 135. He takes its name away from the land. He's the emperor of that world. And he says, there is no more Israel. Wipes the name off the map. And he renames it Palestine, or to them it would have been called Philistine. And allegedly, many scholars believe that this was an insult directly to the Jews who'd lived there for nearly 1,500 years. We're going to rename it after your old enemies, the Philistines, because we're so sick of you Jewish people. So we're going to call it Philistine, Palestine. He also renames Jerusalem. <laughs> name gone. It's called Elia Capitolina. He has Judea erased from all the maps. In the near 2,000 years that follow, the Jewish people have no name. They have no, I mean, not, not on a map. They have no homeland. They're scattered across the whole world. But of course, as the gospel spreads, God's people keep that name in their hearts for one reason or another, sometimes better, sometimes so-called Christians for worse. But my my, my point is that Israel was humiliated and exiled as a people. God promised this would indeed happen after the rejection of him. He promises all throughout the scriptures that when they reject him, they will be expelled from the land. Just a short one, Leviticus 26, 33, And I, you, I will scatter among the nations, he promises them, at the point of my drawn sword. Leaving your country desolate and your cities in ruins. That's a terrible promise from God for their rejection of him. Deuteronomy 4.27, there's a unique promise that I want us to hold on to. I I, I spoke about this last couple of weeks ago, but it's worth re-mentioning. God says, I will then scatter you among the nations. And he says this, and only a small number will remain among the nations where God shall lead you. This is Deuteronomy 4.27. Only a small number will remain among the nations where God shall lead you. This is, again, exactly what happens. Last time I told you that by normal trajectories of population growth, if we take the Jews from where they were 2,500 years ago, they should now be the third most populous people in the world. Hundreds of millions, if not a billion Jews, should occupy this planet according to population trajectories that are normal. There are 14 million Jews in this world. There's more people in Pennsylvania than there are Jewish people. And as the Jewish people wandered and settled, they were often persecuted horribly. But throughout all their wanderings, we talked about this two weeks ago, what did God promise? He promised, you will never cease to be a nation. And this is exactly what happened. Like no other nation on earth, Israel is expelled from her borders, her country erased from maps, and yet Israel remains a people for 2,000 years. But this is exactly what God has promised. You will never cease to be a nation before me, he says in Jeremiah 31. And of course, as we talked about two weeks ago, he promises that one day he would regather Israel back to the land. He promised their forefathers. This promise is also ubiquitous across scripture. But I'll remind you of Ezekiel 37, one of them. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone, and I will gather them from all around and bring them to their own land, and I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, I will save them from their backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. This is in Ezekiel 36 and 37, God promises one day, I'm gonna take you from everywhere I've scattered you across the globe, doesn't matter how far away you are, I'm gonna bring you back to the land, I'm gonna plant you back in that land. And then he says, and I'm gonna, at some point, I'm gonna change your heart. So you turn back to me as a nation, and this promise has indeed begun. Almost two thousand years of exile comes to an end, starting in the last hundred years of our of of (laughs) the like the last hundred years that we've been living, or our grandparents have been living in. Starting at the end of the 1800s, Jews from all over the earth began to feel this intense desire to return to their land. And they begin to move back to the land once called Israel. And now over half of all Jews on earth are living within the borders of the land promised to Jacob. The growth and settlement has been exponential. I think I told you that for one of every Jew that there was there in 1920, there's like 4,000 now. For every one Jewish person that was there about 100 years ago, there's 4,000. Okay, so now we're gonna get deeper. I've I've done a lot of review here if you were here two weeks ago, but we're gonna get a little bit more precise. On May 14th, 1948, something particularly miraculous happens. Please pay attention. The leader, (laughs) that sounds like, I'll forget, sorry. May 14th, 1948, The leader of the Jews living in what was then called Palestine officially say, no, this isn't Palestine. This is Israel. We are a nation again for the first time in 2,000 years. A lot of political things I could talk about that led up to that, but they said it for the first time in 2,000 years. This is Israel. This land is Israel. We are Israel. And though it was a land much smaller than the land God promised Jacob, it was part of that land, and it was the end of two millennia of Israel having no homeland. On the same day, on May 14th, 1948, the functional king of the earth, kingly nation of the whole earth at that point, of the Gentiles, which is the United States, the most powerful nation in the globe, affirms on that same day, against a lot of political opposition, affirms that decree. And at that point, the U.S. had so much clout, it just didn't matter what anybody else said. It was done. It ended all debate on the world stage. Israel's a nation again in the promised land. The U.N. sanctions it eventually. One day, May 14th, 1948. What is particularly miraculous about this day, why I'm bringing this to you, is because 2,700 years before Isaiah, 2,700 years before Isaiah predicted the rebirth of Israel as a nation, and he predicted it happening in one day as a miracle. He says it's going to happen in one day. This is Isaiah 66, verse 8. He's talking about God restoring all things. Isaiah 66 is about God's restoring all things. And a lot of stages in that restoration. But here's what he says in Isaiah 66:8. He literally asks this question rhetorically. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Can a land be born in one day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? As soon as Zion travailed, she also brought forth her sons. Shall I bring to the point of delivery and not bring delivery? Can a nation be born in a day? Isaiah asks. And in 1948, on May 14th, God said yes. And the context of that passage is the restoration of all things, including Israel to the land, God's covenant promises, and the establishment of his kingdom on earth. The very next day, after May 14th, Israel is attacked by all her nearest Muslim neighbors. More wars followed, one after the other. Israel wins each of them and amasses more land at each war. And in a six-day war in 1967, Israel takes control of Jerusalem. This is a lot of history, but I'm, I'm, I'm not just throwing history at you to give you an academic class. This is related to scripture. In 1967, Israel takes back control of the city of Jerusalem for the first time since AD 70. Now, Israel taking control of Jerusalem should provoke us. I'm not a date center. No one knows the day or the hour. But this, if I put it in colloquial terms, this should freak us out a little bit. Luke 21, 24, and they, the Jews, will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. It will be dominated by the Gentile nations until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Jesus says that the terminus X, the end point of Jerusalem's domination by the Gentile nations is correlated with the time of the Gentiles coming to an end. And let me tell you, in the context of Luke and in the context of Matthew and Mark, when you read about this same, this same pericope or, or predictions he's making, complex of predictions he's making, the next move is the return of God. The next move is the return of the Son of God. So what is this time of the Gentiles? What does it have to do with the second coming? What does it have to do with Jerusalem? This is... This is a lot, right? This is my, my third point out of three. To try to understand what Jesus means by the time of the Gentiles, how it relates to Jerusalem and the second coming. We have to think about who he is speaking to when he says this. He is speaking again. Remember again, he's speaking to Jewish disciples who are seeing him as the Jewish Messiah who has come to be the Jewish king in Jerusalem from where he will rule the world. That's the plain language of their day and their understanding. And it's not just political. They understand this from scripture. This is the promise of the Messiah all over scripture. We can just take a few, Psalm 2. Psalm 2, God says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And then the son speaks and the son says, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And then God says to the son, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. This is a conversation between Jesus and God and the Gentiles and God is saying, I have, I have set up my son in Jerusalem and, and the son says, you are my father. And then God says, I'm gonna make all the nations your inheritance. I'm giving you everything. And in Hebrews and in other places, It's affirmed that this is talking about, there's there's maybe a Davidic reference, but this is really ultimately finding its fulfillment in the Messiah, in Jesus Christ. Hebrews 2 tells us that, or Hebrews 1 tells us that, other places tell us that. Isaiah 9, 6, 6, and 7. We're gonna hear about this verse from time to time in the next few weeks, because it's a Christmassy verse. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This son of man, this child given to us is divine. But then Isaiah says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth forevermore governments and nations and thrones and kingdoms it all sounds so fleshly to us in some way doesn't it it feels like we should just be talking about the principles of love and peace and goodness but God has it God made it all he created it all he created nations he understands governing he understands kings and thrones they were all his idea he's not ashamed of them He's ashamed of sin and evil. But he says that his son is going to sit on a throne and rule over the entire earth. And it's going to be David's throne. And where was David's throne? Jerusalem. So the disciples are all hopped up by this. When Jesus is you know, coming, just like John, they're like, when are you going to take the throne and rule the world from Jerusalem and exalt Israel? And, and Jesus says in Luke 21, he says to them, guys, You gotta slow down. I am not taking the throne in Jerusalem now. I'm gonna take the cross. I'm gonna be rejected so that your sins can be forgiven. And as a consequence, Jerusalem is gonna be abandoned to the Gentiles. But not forever, until the Gentiles' time is over, until that time of the Gentiles, whatever that means, has passed. So I believe one way to to receive this phrase, the time of the Gentiles, it's not the only way, but it's, it's one big layer of it, is simply the time in history, the time of the Gentiles is the time in history, as Jesus said it and the disciples would have heard it, when the Messiah is not sitting on his throne in Jerusalem as king, when Israel is not the center of world governance through the Messiah, and instead the Gentiles are dominating the world, including the city of the king. Jerusalem. It's the time when the Messiah is not reigning on earth and the Gentiles are calling the shots. And the Messiah's rule on earth from Jerusalem, which was promised again and again through the prophets, must wait until the time of the Gentiles is completed. But what is the time of the Gentiles? Is it just a season for the Gentiles to run the world contrary to God's plan? No, it's, it's actually, there's also an incredibly beautiful aspect to the time of the Gentiles. In Romans 11, we get more insight into the time of the Gentiles if we consider a parallel passage in the book of Romans. This is the second verse I want you guys to look at. The time of the Gentiles from Luke 21 parallels something Paul calls the fullness of the Gentiles in Romans 11. So turn to Romans 11, verse 25. If you have a Bible or you can use your phone. Hey, listen, David. Just because some of this might feel fire hosy, re- I just wanna double check. Are we recording this? Okay. You guys can like slow it down to half speed. No, I believe the time of the Gent. That's what I would probably need to do. I'm not making fun of you guys, but we need a little breather. Okay, Romans 11. Paul is trying to explain. Listen, to what he's doing. He's trying to explain to the church, to the Jews and Gentiles making up this baby church in Rome. He's trying to say, listen. Israel rejected the Messiah as a nation, right? Some Jews came in, but but mostly Israel as a nation rejects the Messiah. And Paul keeps telling them in Romans 9 through 11, but God's not giving up on them. He still made these promises to to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob. He's going to keep his promises. He's not giving up on Israel, on that nation. Paul's in anguish, he says at the beginning of chapter 9. He's in anguish, full of grief about the rejection of Christ. God made all these promises. And so Paul predicts a day when God will turn the nation of Israel, not just pockets of remnants, people saved here and there, but that the nation will turn their heart back to him. And he explains when, not by date, not by date, by kind of an order of sequence, he explains when that's going to happen in sort of God's plan. He doesn't give us a date, but he gives us a sort of sequence, an epoch stage, if you will, and listen, this sounds very similar to what Jesus said in Luke 21. Verse 25. I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. Now what he's calling for there, it's a really biblically loud call to reject anti-Semitism. <laughs> it's what it is. He's saying, listen, Don't despise the Jewish people. Don't look down on them because they've rejected the Messiah and you've received him. Don't think you're better than them. God's still got a plan for that nation. And you'll be able to see that more clearly. And and isn't it sad that for 2,000 years there have been many seasons when Christians or professing Christians have, have done exactly what Paul said not to do, have despised the Jewish people, have persecuted the Jewish people, And by God's grace, many seasons when we have tried to help them and serve them. But Paul says, do not be wise in your own estimation. And then he says this at the end of verse 25. A partial hardening has happened to Israel forever? No, not forever. Listen, a partial hardening has happened to the Jewish nation. They rejected the Messiah. And in response, God confirmed them for a season in their unbelief. That's what hardening means. It means God, They say, you say to God, I don't want you. And God says, okay, you don't want me? I'll confirm you in that decision. I'll let you lie in the bed you've made. And he says, a partial hardening has happened to Israel, but only for a time. He says, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Jesus calls it the time of the Gentiles. Paul calls it the fullness of the Gentiles. And then Paul says, "And so all Israel will be saved." There, this is a partial hardening. All of Israel is going to come to God at some point. Now, now he doesn't mean, and we need to be careful about these words. Doesn't mean every single Jew who's ever lived is going to come to him. He just means that as a nation, Israel is going to return to God. Now, think about this. Let's think about this again. What did Israel's rejection of Christ mean? What did their rejection of Christ mean? It meant judgment and exile. And and very technically speaking, the loss of Jerusalem. That was kind of the point of the spear. Jerusalem represented the temple. It represented the seat of the Messiah. It is David's city, the holy city. It represents the place from which, in many prophecies, the Messiah rules the world. And that dream dies in AD 70 because they reject Christ. But it's also meant that the gospel that Israel rejects goes to the ends of the earth and brings millions upon millions upon millions of Gentiles to salvation through the Jewish Messiah. That is what the fullness of the Gentiles means. Paul says there is a time, a season, when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. He literally uses that phrase, comes in. Comes into Christ, comes into the Messiah. There is a season, a time period. We've been in it for 2,000 years. Doesn't this sound so much like those of you who know Matthew 24? Doesn't this sound exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 24? He says, at the rejection of the Messiah, Jesus says, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then Jesus says, and then the end will come. I have shivers right now. hair on the back of my neck and my, do you see the shape of history? Does anyone see it? Am I just a really bad preacher? <laughs> I'm not talking about days or hours, but I'm talking about the shape of history. Paul says, there's a, Jesus says there's a time of Gentiles when, when Israel and Jerusalem is humiliated. Paul says this, this is the same correlation as the fullness of the Gentiles, When the Gentiles come into Christ, Jesus says the gospel of the kingdom upon his rejection goes into all the world and then the end will come. In the context of Matthew 24, it's clear what the end means. The end means the coming of the Messiah from the clouds with hands and feet in a body, this thing that's almost impossible for us to imagine. And that, by the way, is the third verse I'd like you to hold on to. is Matthew 24, 14. Matthew 24, 14. Matthew 24, 14. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed through the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. I think these three passages correlate to the same thing. I think that the time of the Gentiles, during which Jerusalem is trampled on and dominated by Gentile nations is parallel with the fullness of the Gentiles that ends with Israel's restoration in Romans 11, 25, and 26. And I think that correlates with Matthew 24, that the gospel of the kingdom is proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And that's Matthew 24, 14. And I can, I can give you these verses and tell you them and email them, okay? I, I just, th- that's really my, my point here is these things all come together, and I believe they're talking about the same shape of history. in Paul and Jesus this season of gentile commission the great commission the going out of the gospel to the whole world it is not forever it ends with the return of Christ at his second coming but here's what the second coming means to the Jews in Romans 11:25 and 26 and 27 the deliverer will come from zion He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. The culmination, the end of this fullness of the Gentiles, it bleeds into this moment when God in Christ from Zion, which is another word for Jerusalem, removes ungodliness from Jacob. Jacob is Israel removes ungodliness from the nation. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Paul is saying, God has not yet taken away the sins of the nation. There are some Jews who have come to Christ for the last 2,000 years, thank God. But as a nation, no, he has not taken away their sins yet. But there's a day coming when from Zion in Jerusalem, they will look upon the one that they have pierced and they will mourn for him and they will repent by God's grace. I'm getting into Zechariah now, so I need to slow down. Paul's picturing Jesus in Zion, which is another name for Jerusalem, turning Israel back to himself through the forgiveness of their sins. So if we put this all together, Jesus is waiting until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled, until the people who are not his Jewish people, but Gentile people from every tribe, nation, and tongue come into him. And when he's decided that's enough, the gospel has run through the world, we're moving on. He's coming back. So, let me just, we're done with all the academic lifting. I just want to remind you. Here's what God says the shape of history is going to look like. This is the shape of history according to the Bible. He calls Abraham to follow him. There's no God worship going on as far as we know in the entire globe. This little man, Genesis 12, God says, I'm starting with you. Follow me. God tells him he'll bless the whole world. Every nation, every family of every nation will bless through this man and through his descendant. God promises to give this man's descendant a homeland through Jacob, Israel. It will be an everlasting possession. God also promises to send a Messiah who would establish them in that land forever and rule the world. God warns Israel that they will reject him He promises them that they will reject him, that they'll be expelled from the land. But God promises to preserve them a nation wherever they wander. Though small in number, he will not let them stop being a nation. Then God promises to gather them back to the land one day. By the way, I have myriad verses for all these promises I'm making. I can send them to you. God promises to gather them back to the land one day and forever establish them there with new hearts. And we turn to Jesus' promises. Jesus promises that after his rejection, Israel will be exiled. Jerusalem will be dominated by Gentile nations until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. During this time, Jesus says the gospel will be preached to all nations, and then the end will come his coming back for the world. Brothers and sisters, I mean, I thought about different applications. If I could make God force an application on you right now, it would just be awe. And I can't do that. But everything, everything, including the rejection of the Messiah and his rejection being turned for our salvation, everything was predicted. Everything has happened just as God said it would happen. There is a, <laughs> I can't say this without thinking of that that movie Return of the Jedi. You know, when Darth and the Emperor are walking down the lane and the Emperor's like, are things with the Death Star coming in, you know, are they working out? And Darth Vader's like, yeah, everything's working out and these things are happening, these things are happening the Emperor cackles, eh. <laughs> everything is coming. What does he say? He says, some Star Wars nerd, um, my brother, what does he say? He says, everything is happening just as I have foreseen. <laughs> right, is that, is that what he says, something like that? I mean, God doesn't cackle, he's not evil, he's not a laughing weird emperor. But I, I look at these, these promises and, and I look at the shape of history and it's all happening just as God has said. i got to pray a little bit about this, but my plan right now is next time to take you guys to Zechariah 12, 13, and 14 and do a really concentrated look. If you want to look ahead at Zechariah 12, 13, and 14. Because God, he, he paints a scenario which, just like the shape of history I've detailed, is getting even more detailed. And, and it looks impossibly like exactly what's what's, blossoming in our world today. And I won't won't ruin it, you can read ahead, and and I'm not saying it's happened yet, but I'm just saying it's like all the chess pieces, you know, they're all coming to the place that God says. It's like his Bible has been telling us, I'm gonna put the king here, I'm gonna put the rook here, I'm gonna put the pawn here, I'm gonna put the bishop here. And you just look at history, and for the love of God, it is all happening, just like he says, It is, and and I just, I want us to be in awe. I want us to fear him and to love his word and to know that this is reliable. I want us to be sobered because he's really serious. He's really faithful. He does what he says. I want us to have hope because he's the king And though we might be in a prison cell with John the Baptist, he is doing exactly as he said. And blessed are we if we take no offense at him and stumble, but we say, okay, Lord. Behead me if you must, but resurrect me like you promised. Because you're the king, you're sovereign, you're in control, and you promised, and not just to come back for me, thank God, but Closer to our heart, perhaps, you promised manna for every day. You promised to give me enough to make it through today. So please fulfill your promises to me. I want us to cry out to him if we don't feel that. To bang on his door, to keep imploring him. Saying, give me this grace and mercy you promised me. You're doing all these other things just as you said. So where's the help I need today, Lord? Answer me. Do not be far from me. I want you to respectfully yell at your dad and tell him you need his help. Respectfully yell at your dad. I just mean cry out respectfully. I don't mean yell at him. Hopefully you guys got that. And, and certainly most of all, God protect us from being scoffers. I mean, we're all gonna struggle like John the Baptist in that cell of this broken world right now, waiting for the coronation of our king. But God keep us from being scoffers, who deliberately overlook what he has said in his word again and again and again. Let's pay attention to this word. Peter says that we must pay attention to the prophetic word. He says this beautifully. He says, as a lamp shining in a dark place until the light of the Son of God appears. This word is a lamp. It's very dark out there. It's very dark in here sometimes. This is a lamp. Pay attention to it. His prophetic word.